Welcome back to Actors with Issues, the weekly podcast where we interview the rising stars of TV, film, and Broadway and give you an inside look at the entertainment industry from the ground level. I am your host, Juan Ayala, and today I am joined by actor, writer, producer, and director Taylor Coriel, who originated the role of Pam Beasley in the off-Broadway musical parody of The Office. Taylor is also the showrunner and star of the award-winning series You're the Pest and was a semifinalist in this year's Script Pipeline TV writing competition with her original pilot, Always Blue. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> like gasping for air. Okay. Nice. Uh, so let's dive right into our first segment. It's called Getting to Know You. It's a rapid fire round of questions to get to know you a little better. We always start with an easy one, coffee or tea? Well, I was just about to take a drink of coffee. So definitely coffee. He said rapid <laughs> fire and I was like, oh my gosh, okay, well, I better, better gas up. So coffee for sure. <laughs> Uh, what is a movie that never fails to make you cry? I'll tell you in general, like, oh, you know what? The latest movie that I, I cried at was um, Thelma and Louise. Mm. I love I love movies uh, about female friendship. And I was thinking of all these ones, like, because I was about to be like, I can't say Pitch Perfect because that's so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> but I did the last time I watched it. I was like, look at them up there singing. And I was just like, had a little tear in my eyes. So <laughs> dumb. But the last one, um, the last one I watched that I was like, that I, I cried for real over was Thelma and Louise. Cause like, what a way to go. Right. Right. <laughs> no spoilers, <laughs> but everybody should go watch it. Cause it's a good one. <laughs> and uh, what is a movie that never fails to make you laugh? <laughs> Drop dead gorgeous. Do you know that one? <laughs> I don't actually. Oh my gosh. It's kind of like a cult classic, I think, but it's, um, I love Allison Janney, Allison Janney, Ellen Barkin. Um, and then like, uh Kirsten Dunst Brittany Murphy may she rest in peace mm. um like uh Amy Adams is in that movie it's really funny it's, it's a whole one, but, uh yeah uh, Denise <laughs> Richards oh mm. man it's really good everybody should watch it so it's it's a funny one so definitely that <laughs> uh what is your go-to karaoke song um I always sing uh, Goodbye Earl by the Chicks with <laughs> my friend Tegan because mm. um, it makes us laugh. <laughs> That's my go-to. Uh, what is the worst side job that you've ever had? Oh, God. <laughs> if anybody can see my face right now. What's the worst side job I've ever had? Um, <clears throat> not going to name any names. I've tempted a lot. I've mm. catered a lot. Um, I've been a princess for little kids' birthday parties, which is actually surprisingly fun, but I would say specifically the worst job I've ever had was as a personal assistant for this health and wellness company. And I am not going to say which one, but it like, oh my God, I worked, that was one of my first jobs in the city. And man, this dude ugh, taught me the definition of a toxic workplace. <laughs> yeah. I was all uphill from there. <laughs> all uphill from there for sure. Uh, if you could master any accent, which would it be? New Zealand. <laughs> That's a tough one, isn't it? I, feel, I, I haven't. I can't even attempt it. I don't even. Oh know. my gosh! Well, if you watch Starstruck, uh, it's a show that just came out. What's it on? I think it's on HBO Max, maybe. Um, but she's like a the star of it is um she's like a comic from 
New Zealand. Mm. Gosh, what if I, what if she's Australian and I just said she's New Zealand? I'm almost <laughs> I'm I'm 99 sure it's New Zealand and I listen to it and I'm just like how I can't even figure out how to mimic it and I'm pretty good at picking up dialects too <laughs> and I cannot pick up New Zealand. It is difficult. Uh, where do you find yourself on your day off? In bed. <laughs> I feel like that's most people's like, answers. They're like yeah. sleeping. <laughs> especially especially now, like I think uh, during the pandemic, I definitely. <laughs> If I learned one thing from the, from the pandemic, it's how to take a day off. Mm. Um, I've never been good at it. And it was just like, I don't know, I guess it was just felt no more necessary to like <laughs> lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and be like, what's happening. <laughs> so I feel like my day, my day off was doing that, but I, I love to read. And that's like a, mm. you know, I had fallen out of the habit, um, um, just living in New York and being busy all the time. And so, um, I love to, I'll just lay in bed and read, drink coffee, have a pop tart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's a show that you've watched through multiple times? Gilmore girls, uh, drama or comedy. Are you asking if Gilmore girls is a drama or comedy or which I prefer? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which did you prefer, uh, like to perform? <laughs> To perform drama or comedy comedy. I love to make people laugh. Uh, Hero (laughs) or villain hero stage acting or screen acting stage plays or musicals musicals and describe your worst audition in three words and then no further explanation needed. So we'll put the story together in our heads. (laughs) Three words. My worst audition in three words. That's all. That's all. Oh man. (laughs) How's that for relatable? (laughs) Uh, So Taylor, you were born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky, and then you made the move to New York city. Uh, But before we get into your time here, uh, when did you start acting back home? And when did you make the decision to pursue a career in acting? So um, yes, I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, born and raised. I went to college there um, as well. I started acting I did my first musical when I was 10. Uh, I was a towns kid in Hello Dolly at the high school that I ended up going to. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'd done like a play before that. Like, you know, you do like when you're in elementary school. Right. The Thanksgiving show or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And um, we have a great children's theater in my hometown, Lexington Children's Theater. And um, they would come and do workshops at, at local elementary school so that was my first play but my first time I think that I like got bit by the bug was doing Hello Dolly um and then from there I went to a performing arts middle school and high school um in my hometown which I was really lucky so I was doing theater and singing and everything you know uh from basically the time I did Hello Dolly until now you know um and I think when I realized I wanted to be an actor, I was 16, um, because there is, there was uh, an outdoor Shakespeare festival in my hometown mm. and my theater teacher, I was a theater major at, in high school. And my theater teacher was stage managing a production of the Tempest and they needed, um, fairies, uh, to work with Ariel, uh, if you know the Tempest at all. And, um, so they hired me to do it and, I spent that summer with all of these like 
we have an incredible theater community in my hometown and it was incredible then and it's grown even much more in the however many years <laughs> since it's been <laughs> since I was in high school um and uh yeah I think you know uh, the festival that summer had um they formed an institute uh, I'm I'm telling you all this because it, I remember specifically what made me realize that I not only did I want to be an actor, but that it was an actual possibility. Cause I think I sort of knew in my mind that there were people who were actors or who worked in the theater professionally, but I'd never seen people or met people who mm. did it, you know? And so um, that summer I was doing the show at night and during the day I attended like a, like a day program, like a, they called it the Lexington Shakespeare Institute. Um, it's now called something else. And they brought in professionals from LA and New York who were from our community, who were from Lexington, who were older, you know, older than us, like graduated college out working professionally for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And they all came back for three weeks to teach us, you know, stage combat. And, um, you know, we had a, someone who had worked with Ann Bogart city company come back and teach us viewpoints and someone who'd studied with, you know, the Meisner technique came back. And so not only was I getting like exposure to all of this stuff and I was such a nerd, I loved everything theater and so to see these people come back and realize that they'd been out there doing it I was like oh I can do that like this is a for real thing and I think so that's when I realized I wanted to be an actor or at least just in the industry uh, once I realized I could entertain people for a living that's what I wanted to do and uh when is it that you made the move I mean I'm assuming like right after college you made the move to um to New York correct yeah. Yeah. I graduated college and then I took about a year. I had like a couple of gigs lined up. So I gigged for a year basically. And then after college, and then I moved to New mm. York that next summer. Gotcha. And um, so I'm fortunate that my move to New York was like less than two hours. I was in Connecticut. So just like a state away, um, <laughs> but you know, coming here from Kentucky, what was that like for you? And, and do you have any advice for anyone that's like moving to a major market from farther than two hours like me? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was really lucky. You know, I was one of, the, I, I feel like I was one of the first people uh, uh, of my age group from my community that moved up here. I had two friends, one who I'd been in college with who moved up here. And she also was from Connecticut. So she was very familiar mm -hmm. with New York. Um, and then I helped another friend from Kentucky move up about a year or two before I moved here. And so I'd been here, I'd visited, but I was also really lucky to have these two friends who, who actually lived here, who could help me figure stuff out. <laughs> um, and so I actually, I, I stayed with, um, with my friend, Jessica, my friend from Connecticut, who was originally from Connecticut. I stayed with her for like a month before I officially moved. She was very generous of her. And so I, before I actually moved, you know, I was sleeping on her couch, but I had lined up a job. I figured out the subways and all this stuff. And by the time I mm. had my own apartment and had, you know, come up with all my stuff, um, I had figured out the subways and I had a day job <laughs> to help me, uh, to tie me over. So, mm. you know, not everybody's that lucky. Um, but I think, using your, you know, um, what, whatever you can with people, if you, if you made the choice to go to college and you have an alumni, you know, circle up here, mm -hmm. tapping into the, those groups or, um, you know, finding people 
through social media, you know, I know that sounds kind of weird, but I mean, you and I met through clubhouse, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I feel like we're also connected now. There's no way that you can move to a city like New York or even LA and not be able to connect with somebody through at least one degree of separation, right. you know? So I think not being afraid to ask people for help because we were all new once. And I think, you know, people give New Yorkers a bad rap for being unfriendly. I don't think that New Yorkers are unfriendly. I think we're just busy. Yeah. We've all got <laughs> you know, somewhere to go. It's yeah. Not... And you know, I've never, I've, but I've never been on a subway or on the street and seen somebody fall or had some, you know, cry on the subway and not had somebody like reach out and be like, Hey, are you okay? Or like, Hey, do you need right. anything? Or can I help you? You know, I've never seen that. It might not be always with like a smile and a hug and a wave, especially now because of COVID. Right. But but New Yorkers are helpful. We're all we're all here together, and I think just not being afraid to ask for help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, of, of course, New Yorkers always get that bad rap for for yeah. being mean or rude or whatever. It's like we just got places to go. Get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. we're tired. It's hot here. No matter what time of year. <laughs> right. My feet hurt. We're walking everywhere. Yeah. And now we have masks, so you right. can't even see, uh, you know, us smiling. Like that's the one thing I, I, I'm, I've not lost the habit of the Southern habit of smiling at people when I make eye contact with them. Um, right. I give a nod at least, like something. Yeah. I don't just ignore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I haven't lost that very, very Southern habit of smiling at people, and it's weird now with masks because I know nobody can see it. <laughs> the eye crinkle. Although I feel like you can tell a, you can tell a, um, a disingenuous eye crinkle. Like I'm like, I know you're not smiling under your mask. You're just crinkling your eyes. So you think? <laughs> so I think you are. Anyway, oh, this God. is off subject. That- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. One of your more recent gigs, I mean, at least before the pandemic, was the Office musical parody. Mm-hmm. Um, and you originally the role of Pam Beasley on it. And I yeah. know we actually met obsessing over the Office on a Clubhouse yes, group. We did, uh, yes. Yeah. So what was that experience like for you? Wow. Well, let's see. Let me dial back, like, I guess three years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> which is insane to think about. It's so funny. This, this time of year was when we were getting ready to start rehearsals. They had just announced our casting and, and we were headed into rehearsals for this. And, um, I keep all these pictures keep popping up. It's so funny to think about. Um, it was really delightful, you know, Bob and Tabley McSmith. <clears throat> um, I had known them before I had friends who'd worked on their shows you know they have several <laughs> successful parody musicals of like beloved 90s and early 2000s sitcoms mm. um you know friends and um 90210 was where I was uh, that's the show I saw I was still they were still down um in uh, I think theater at St under St Mark's or it was downtown they were still downtown mm. and um I saw that show and I <laughs> I didn't stop laughing for the whole time and um, I knew the director on that, Don Garbrick, and he, he was our director for, uh, for the office as well. And I just thought they were so funny. And so when they, when they announced that they were, you know, um, making the office into a, a show, I couldn't help but laugh because one, I knew it would be hilarious. Mm. Um, and two, I had always said as an actor, um, you know, you know how you do like uh, workshops with casting directors or agents or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're always like, what's your type? 
and people were always confused with me because I'm classically I'm a classically trained soprano so I sing like obviously really high Mm -hmm. typically golden age stuff but when you meet me I think I give off this kind of more like funny sidekick vibe (laughs) and so people were always kind of like what are you (laughs) who are you and so what I had always said was if the office was a musical, I would be Jim. Jim. <laughs> yeah. And, um, or Pam, you know, at the end of the day, like, uh, they wouldn't let me try out for Jim. So, <laughs> uh, I was just sort of like, when I found out they were doing the office, I was like, Oh my God. And everybody asked me, they were like, are you going to go in for Pam? Are you going to go in for Pam? And I was like, obviously, you know, and, and then I got called back for it. And, I broke out my, uh, the only white sneakers I had and a pencil skirt and a button up and went to my callback. (laughs) And it was just, it was so, it was so fun. And I I love workshopping new things. And we, we spent, you know, we rehearsed it for two weeks. Um, they wrote the music after they hired us, um, our composer, Asaf Gleisner, who's written a bunch of music for, for Bob and Tobley shows. And, um, uh, he, he wrote Pam as a high soprano, which was fun. Uh, we got, we all got to tell him like what styles of music we were most comfortable singing and, um, and what our, you know, the outsides of our range were, uh, and he, we, he and I had worked together before, so he already knew. So he, he wrote, he wrote Pam real high for me. Cause I love to sing high <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just like workshopping it and like finding what was best and, you know, like adding jokes to the script and you know the visual gag that Don added it's just like it was just like a it was like a dream experience like everybody was cool everybody was so perfectly suited to the roles that they had um in the cast and obviously behind the scenes as well it was just it was a real dream and then for it to take off like it did Mm -hmm. um and be such a success was was cool and it was you know, when I moved to New York, I think the only reason my mom wasn't worried is because I didn't say that I wanted to be on Broadway or that I wanted to be super famous. I just said that I wanted to work. I just wanted to not have any other job besides being an actor. And, um, and for a year, that's what I got to do with a bunch of really cool, funny, talented people doing a show that like brings a lot of people joy. People love the office, man. I love the office. And It was just cool to be like a little like footnote in the like history of the the show. Um, It was dope. It was really cool. It was a really great experience. Um, Everybody in the cast is a delight. And it was so fun to work with Asaf and Don again. And Bob and Tobley really are (laughs) just (laughs) funny, 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 funny humans. I don't understand how their brains work, but (laughs) they're so funny. So anyway, that's, that's what, how the office was. <laughs> the end of your year, was it because of COVID that it had stopped or was it prior to that? No, um, I, I, I quit. I quit. I left the show. Um, <laughs> I stomped out. I stormed out of the theater. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I left the show um, in the fall of 2019. I had been doing it a year. Gotcha. And um during that time, you know, you mentioned earlier my show, You're the Pest. Around the time that I got cast in the office, I had just finished releasing that show online mm. um, the whole first season. And we start, we had gotten into a bunch of festivals. And so I'd spent the whole year 
be, of being in the office also doing the festival circuit with my show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that opened up a lot of doors for me um, with my other projects as a writer. And so it was just time, you know, for me to go and I had stuff to pitch and, you know, festivals to catch up to, to go to and catch up with people that I had missed at other ones. Cause I was in the office. And so it was just time to go. And, um, but that was a couple months before COVID. <laughs> right. And so, um, and so when COVID hit, I was, uh, I think I had just finished a gig as a, as a Christmas caroler, which was fun. <laughs> that was a fun side job. That's a fun side job. Mm. Um, and, um, and yeah, uh, I was temping at the time and writing a new script, which is always blue that you mentioned also earlier yeah. <laughs> from a script pipeline. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I feel like we hear a lot of when actors um, of all levels and, you know, of all throughout the industry, whether it's theater or, or television or, or whatever it is, um, f- following their gut and just being like, okay, like I did my time here. I mean, it's like with any job, a lot of times you'll be at a job for like a year or five years and okay, time to move on to do more things, especially with an artist wanting to pursue other avenues and focus on different things. So that like, and understandably with theater, if something were to suddenly close and you're not sort of caught off guard and like, Oh my God, what now? It's like, Nope, I've got all of this lined up. So, um, you know, and I mean, you are a huge content creator and that's something that has really been a focus on the show because so many actors know that they have to create content if they want to stay busy and, increase their reel or get reps or anything like that um and also being a multi-hyphenate so what can you share about your experience as a content creator uh and why every actor pretty much should take on that role at some point let me just start by saying you know a lot of times people tell actors to like it's almost like this feeling of like to stay relevant actor you Mm. need to create your own content and for and to a certain extent you know I, I already wanted to do that. Like it w- is in me to create stories to tell people because I'm a writer. Mm. And I don't think that all actors are writers. Their skill sets are different. Their passions are different. And like what brings them joy as an artist is different, you know? And so like, I hate it. I hate that people are saying like, you must now force yourself to also do this thing that you don't really enjoy right. to stay relevant. Right. I hate that. But what I will say, you know, if I hadn't taken to writing the way that I did, the reason that I started writing, I had, I had been at ECB taking improv and sketch. Um, and I really, really liked sketch. And around that time um, that I started, that I started writing, uh, You're the Pest wasn't actually the first thing that I wrote but it was a, it's like the first thing that I wrote that I actually ended up going through and making. And I, I wrote it with, um, I, I'm a co-writer, um, co-creator with my friend Jasmine Romero. And um, she and I were <laughs> sick of 
going in for the same roles over and over again. I was sick of going in and people being like, <laughs> I was sick of going in for young mom roles. And I think she was sick of going in and having people ask her to be Sofia Vergara all the time. Um, <laughs> yes. And um, we were like, let's just write something that we know we'll have fun doing together. Mm. And so we wrote, you're the pest, which is a buddy comedy about two former friends who take over their family's extermination business in Queens. And it's a comedy as we wrote it. And then as I started to be like, you know, I want to produce this. I want, I want to make this. It becomes crystal clear when you write for yourself, what you know, you're good at. Mm -hmm. And so writing for myself helped me pinpoint that. That was a question I'd always had trouble, you know, going back to those like workshops with casting directors or agents or whatever. They're like, what's your type? What's your brand? Which I hate that, you know. I think Jenny on Clubhouse is always saying, Jenny Hochberg was always saying, uh, what's your essence? Which I like much better. As I was writing, as Jasmine and I were writing You're the Pest, I started realizing like that I wrote a character that was perfect for me to play that only I could play that I knew it was my voice. Obviously I was writing it, but <laughs> I think, I think even if after, even after you're the pest, if I hadn't kept writing or anything like that, I think I would have taken that knowledge with me of like, this is what I'm good at. This is what I know that I can bring to any script that someone sends me. And if it's not what they want, so be it. But now I know what it is. So anytime I got a callback or an audition, anytime somebody sent me sides, I always knew how to bring myself to it because I always feel like that's something else people are always saying bring yourself to it and I was like I don't know what that means <laughs> and then we get really existential like you know who am I what am I trying to say <laughs> but like but it did help you know writing for myself and creating a role for myself it helped me it helped me solidify that you know what do I do best mm -hmm. and how I can market myself from there and so even if you know, actors out there who are thinking that they want, you know, they have to make something. Even if after this, you decide you never want to do anything again, take this opportunity to take stock and realize what it is that you do best and write that for yourself. And then make sure that you take that knowledge with you so that you know, when you walk into a room that you're the best at something, because that's hard. That's like a hard vibe to bring. But yeah. I think bringing that vibe into a room and also knowing that you have something else going on, it takes the edge off that, uh, that need to book a job, right. you know, right. that desperation sometimes, you know, to book a job, it takes the edge off because you know, that no matter what you not only brought your best in, but you brought what you were best at in that day. Yeah. Wow. Put that on t-shirt. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> not very quotable, but like, but that, yeah, I hope that makes sense. You know? Cause that's what I, that's, I think the best thing that I learned from, from making her the pest and now from making all of these other things is just, is it, it as an actor specifically, it teaches you so much about yourself. Um, and that's something that you, you can't pay for that in a class. There's a quote that I bring up on the show constantly, but it's just cause it's like engraved in my brain at this point. Um, but it's from Elizabeth Gilbert um, who wrote you pray love and big magic um, and it was, there's no shame in having a job. What is shameful is holding your art or it's forcing your art to pay for your entire existence. Mm. 
And to me, that always sticks me because like having that like side project or your own endeavor that's completely in your control, whether it's just a script or a web series or a short film, like you said, takes that edge off of having to book like the next thing. So like whenever you finish a job, people always ask like, oh, so what's next for you or whatever, you know, that's like the dreaded mm-hmm. question at the dinner table Ugh. when you visit family or your friends come into town or whatever. And they're like, oh, like what's, what's, what's next. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you've got something, oh, look, I'm actually writing and producing my own, whatever. Um, instead of like, oh, well just auditioning. And you know, that's like when everyone starts to get anxiety. Cause you're like, oh God, what is next for me? Like, <laughs> and it's again, yeah. like forcing, you know, just like des- having that sense of desperation to book the next thing. And um, even though I haven't produced anything yet, I'm always trying to like write something because Mm -hmm. I want something to, when I get the opportunity to produce something, it's like, it's at the ready, ready to go. And I'm not constantly like waiting, like for the next thing to pop up, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, like, I know so many people and it it doesn't have to be a web series, you know, it could be a short or Mm -hmm. it could not be on film. I mean, sometimes you know, having something on film is helpful (laughs) just because you can send it to people, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't exist only in like, um, it doesn't exist only in real life. It exists like somewhere that you could send to someone in LA or like a different place. But like, I know people who have like, I'm thinking specifically of a couple of people, like a one woman show where they run their own theater company that produces new works or something like that. It doesn't always have to star you, but it, it, it gives you like, an outlet for, for whatever burns at you, you know, like whatever that thing is that, you know, you became an actor for you, you wanted to become a creative for like, we all have something. I think that, I mean, at least for me, it just burns like in a good way. It's like a nice, healthy burn, (laughs) like that burns at your, you know, it burns at your center. And you're like, this, this is something I have to get out, whatever it is. If it's, um, if it's a play or a song or a musical or a one woman show or a web series, you know, like just having that, it's exactly like you said, it's, it's being able to say, I have this other thing that's all mine. You know, I don't need permission from somebody else to do this. We're always asking for permission. I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying to you (laughs) and to everybody who might listen to this, like, we're always asking for permission and we don't need to ask people for permission to make, to turn what we have to say into a, into a work of art. Mm. Like we don't need someone's permission to do that because we can make it. And even if nobody sees it, you know, that's something I told myself at the beginning of the pandemic. I know I keep bringing up, you know, the panini. I was sitting here and I was writing, I was working on always blue. And then I was working on like this other feature and another pilot And as I was writing all of them, you know, sitting alone, like in my apartment, never seeing anybody going out like every two weeks to do laundry, I was like, "Ugh, what am I doing any of this for? Why am I writing any of this? And at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, even if nobody, even if these scripts never see the light of day, even if nobody ever reads them, even if they never get made, I will have written them. They were a blank page. And now is a story that never would have existed outside of my head. And now I have, and I will always be able to point to the stack of paper in the corner, um, not Um, (laughs) eco-friendly, the stack of paper in the corner and be like, I made that. Mm -hmm. Like I made a hat, okay? Like I made a hat where there never was a hat. You know, thinking that again and again has helped me sometimes when I'm like, 
what if nobody ever wants to buy this? What if I'm never, you know, what if nobody ever hires me to write on a TV show? What if I never get to run my own show? What if I never act again? You know, mm-hmm. I have like, I have a stack of paper of my own full of stories that came out of my head. And if I hadn't just written them down, buckled down and done it, then they wouldn't exist. And even if nobody else ever reads them, they still like they exist because I could not write them. But it's time to wrap up now with our last segment called Now That We Know You. Uh, it's just some slightly deeper questions, not so much rapid fire. So don't worry about. Um, gotcha. I did about, really bad with a hey. rapid fire before. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, so these are all grab bags. So I just got a list here. We'll pick one. Oh. Uh, do you consider yourself lucky? No. I don't believe in luck. Mm. I think luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I mean, that's not new. That's not my original thought, obviously. I love that. Many people think that. <laughs> luck just feels too random to me. And I feel like I like to live deliberately mm. and, you know, yeah, I don't believe in luck. It's when preparation meets opportunity. And you can create your own opportunities. Um, do you want to win an Oscar or Emmy one day? I mean, I guess like it would make making the next thing easier. Right. <laughs> you know, it kind of gives you like a little, it's like getting verified. <laughs> right. It gives you like your little blue check mark. Yeah. But I don't know. It would be an honor to be nominated. How about that? Mm. Uh, if you could live anywhere in the world and still pursue your career, where would it be? Kentucky. Back home? Yeah. That's sweet. I feel like people are usually like, oh, Greece, Italy, Paris, you know. Nope. I think Kentucky is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Mm. It is underappreciated. It's, yeah, I love Kentucky. Uh, If you weren't working in the arts, what would you be doing? I have no idea. (laughs) You're such a multi-hyphenate that it's like, usually when I say like, if you weren't acting, they'd be like, oh, directing. And I'm like, no, it's cop out answer. So I just switch (laughs) it to the arts. But it's like, you are involved so heavily in all these different avenues that it's like, if you weren't acting, you'd still be doing like 10 other things. You know, if, if I considered it, like I wouldn't be in the arts, you know, they always say that they're always like, if you could do anything else, do that. Mm. And, um, I know I could do something else. You know, um, I was lucky enough to go to college, um, to receive like a great education. Um, you know, um, my mom's a lawyer, my sister's a doctor. Um, I grew up solidly middle-class, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like I have, it's not, I have other things I could probably do, but I wouldn't, I don't know what else I would do because I feel like I just wouldn't be happy. I feel like anytime I, you know, you get sick of it. I don't know if you ever had this where you're just like, oh, everything sucks. I hate it. I'm, I want to leave New York. I want to. I should just get a day job and do that. Like every, every Sunday. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, every single time I'm like, what if I, I could go do something else. I have, you know, two hands and a degree and a savings account. You know, I could right. do, I could go do something. And every single time I even start thinking about it, something pulls me back. Mm-hmm. The office. Gosh, I was about ready to quit. <laughs> the office 
when the office came in, you know, every single time something pulls me back and I'm, and eventually I started being like, maybe I should just quit (laughs) trying to think about all, like trying to figure out what the other thing I could possibly do and be remotely happy is. Um, because like I keep getting snapped back here. So I don't know what I would do if I wasn't in the industry. And, uh, in 10 words or less, what advice would you give to a young performer? Okay. There's no right path to beyond, but yours. Taylor, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Uh, where can folks find you on social media if they want to give you a follow? Um, I am at Freckly Soprano one across all platforms. I guess there's another Soprano take. Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I, or I was being obnoxious, which is probably more likely when I was like 19. Uh, I think when I first made a Twitter account. And I was like, I'm a soprano one. Like, so I'm gonna be <laughs> soprano one. <laughs> let's say that's what happened. Let, let me that's let hilarious. me leave leave off on how obnoxious I was. How about that? <laughs> oh God. Uh, um, you can all oh, follow. You can right. I was gonna say you can also watch You're the Pest um, on YouTube or at you're the pest series.com. Awesome. Yeah. And you can all follow us on Instagram at Actors with Issues. A big thank you to our sponsor, Anchor, for supporting the show. Head over to anchor.fm to get started on your very own podcast, 100% free. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the show, leave a rating and review wherever you're listening, and catch some episodes every Friday on all podcasting platforms. I'm Juaniala, that's Taylor Coriel, and this is Actors with Issues. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all. <laughs>